0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And I was recently listening to an episode of a different podcast, the podcast Sawbones, in which wife and husband team Sydney and Justin McElroy discuss some of the ways we humans have tried to treat medical issues using a limited understanding of those issues and the various treatments we were applying. So they've done tons of episodes on stuff like bloodletting or trepanation, and recently they did one on the use of electricity as a means of treating medical issues. And they do a great job, but I thought I would dive into it a little bit more and talk about how we built an understanding around electricity and then how we made use of electricity to try and treat ourselves, sometimes not so well. And I'm looking really at the early uses. I'll talk a little bit about modern uses of electricity, but I'm mostly focusing on how we first started applying electricity to medical uses. And I want to keep in mind that we do still have electrotherapy today, though it's still a matter of some mystery and confusion, also largely because some people appropriate the term electrotherapy to peddle medically questionable products and services. So you've got more reputable sources that are attempting to determine whether or not electrotherapy is a working means of treatment, and you have other people who don't really concern themselves with that part, they're just looking to sell stuff. And electricity is almost like magic to a lot of us. And also in this episode, I'll be focusing primarily on direct application of electricity. It's pretty obvious that many medical procedures either depend directly or indirectly on electricity and electrical instruments and equipment. And I'm not getting down all those pathways, though we should understand that our use of electricity in the medical field began to emerge around the same time as our understanding of other phenomena, such as X-rays and ultraviolet rays. And so a lot of histories about electricity in medicine also talk about these. And sure, we could talk about lots of different types of equipment, scanners, things like that, instruments. But I really want to talk about directly applying electricity to the human body. Back to Sawbones, which I should add is is not affiliated with the iHeartRadio network at all. Just in the interest of full disclosure, I am a fan of Sawbones. I also have no connection with the McElroys. Though, hey, guys, Sydney, Justin, Griffin, Travis, if you if you want to chat, hit me up. But the Sawbones episode was inspired by Benjamin Franklin, who conducted famous experiments with electricity. If you are familiar with Benjamin Franklin as a historical figure, you've probably heard about his experiment with the kite and the key during the thunderstorm. So some of this episode will play into that a little bit. But our knowledge of electricity actually dates much further back than that founding father of the United States. You could really say that yeah, humans were at least aware of electricity in some measure just from the presence of lightning. Now, we didn't understand what it was. We didn't have a name for it like electricity, and we didn't know how it was formed, but we knew it existed. We could see that. But it would take a long time to figure out what those bolts actually were. In fact, during Benjamin Franklin's time, the thought was it was some form of fluid. In fact, that's why we get the word current because of a flow of some sort of electrical ether fluid stuff. Now, the earliest account that describes one aspect of electricity, one that is going to be very important for this discussion, comes from Thales of Miletus. And I know I've butchered that name. My Greek is worse than my Latin, which is terrible. But he was a Greek philosopher. Uh, Aristotle actually thought of him as the first true philosopher who was born in 624 BCE. And he asked a lot of questions, which is what philosophers do. And these are questions that had before his time largely been met with the answer because the gods want it to be that way. You know, like like lightning was Zeus's way of saying, "Hey, knock that crap off." But this philosopher was more inclined to believe that there were less mythological explanations for certain phenomena. There might be more natural and one could argue in the future, scientific explanations for those things. And one thing he observed had to do with what we now know as static electricity. He wrote something that likely people had already been observing for quite some time, which was if you rubbed amber with something like animal fur, if you did it vigorously enough, the fur would then start to attract other stuff like motes of dust to it, Particles would drift toward the fur. It was drawing stuff to it. Uh, Stuff like uh, blades of dried grass would move toward it. And there was some sort of power of attraction going on that people just couldn't easily explain. But I can do it. Now, to be fair, very smart people figured all this stuff out way, way before I was ever born. And I just benefit from having been able to read about it. Uh, But it comes down to some basic features in atoms. So yeah, this is going to get super, super basic, and then we'll build up from there. You know, typical tech stuff approach. Atoms have neutrons, protons, and electrons. Protons have a positive charge. Electrons have a negative charge. And neutrons just want to get through the day without too much hassle. Opposite charges attract each other, so a negative charge attracts a positive charge. Likewise, like charges repel each other. So if you get two positively charged particles together, well, you're going to be spending a lot of energy because those positive charges are going to push back against each other. Uh, There are forces within the nucleus of an atom that bind protons together, which is why they don't just fly apart from the fact that their charges are repelling each other. With the amber and animal fur, what's really going on is a transfer of electrons from one material to the surface of another material. The animal fur collects electrons from the amber and thus builds up a negative charge. This charge is nowhere to go. It's static. There's no current to flow through. There's no circuit there for it to create a current. So if the negatively charged material makes contact with something else, It can then release that electric charge. It can discharge. And that's when you get that little snappy spark. It's also what happens if you rub your feet against a carpet and then touch someone else or something metal and you get that little shock. It's because you've got this buildup of electrons that you then discharge when you come in contact with something that doesn't have that buildup. So... The animal fur with a negative charge will attract stuff that has a greater positive charge than the fur does. So those dust motes have a slight positive charge to them. They're being attracted to that negative charge. On a related note, if you've ever seen a person's hair stand on end after taking off a hat or if they're playing with an electrostatic generator, that's because the hairs get negatively charged and because like charges repel each other, the hairs are actually repelling one another. They stand on end because they're attempting to get as far away from each other as they possibly can. Uh, Or so I'm told. I don't know. I've been bald for 20 years. I have no idea what hair even does anymore. It never comes to visit. Doesn't even call me. Anyway, while philosophers like the one I was just mentioning observed phenomena like these, they had no way to explain what was actually going on, and it remained a mystery for centuries. And no one yet had had been able to link this curious observation with more dramatic examples like lightning. There was no way of saying these two things are related. If we want to talk about therapy, well, there are actually some stories about ancient people using electrotherapy. Uh, Hippocrates, or hippocrates if you prefer, treated patients by placing them in barrels filled with water and uh, electric eels. It's pretty primitive electrotherapy. He did that to treat stuff like gout and rheumatism. I'm not sure to what effect because I ran out of time before I could really dig up more accounts of that particular therapy. Now, we probably get the word electricity, thanks mainly to a fellow named William Gilbert. He was born in 1544 in England, and he became an astronomer and a physician. He actually served Elizabeth I at one point as a court physician. He also wrote a work titled De Magnete, which he published around 1600. This work was filled with his observations on matters surrounding magnetism and electrical phenomena. He differentiated between magnets and the attractive effect observed when using amber, sometimes helpfully called the amber effect. Gilbert said these two things were similar but distinct phenomena, that magnets and this attractive force he was observing through electrostatic buildup were related somehow or similar in many ways, but they were not exactly the same thing. Later, scientists would determine that they are both manifestations of a single force, that of electromagnetism, but they are distinct. So that would be getting ahead of ourselves. Let's get back to Gilbert. He referred to the materials that were known for this static electricity effect as electricus, Uh, That is a new Latin word, meaning it wasn't an existing Latin phrase. He actually took a Greek word and then he sort of Latinized it. And he meant it to mean like amber. So electricus is like amber. The Greek word was electron, which meant amber itself. So he took a Greek word, made it sort of Latin, and then got electricus. Uh, He described the attractive force as an electric force. Another smarty pants named Francis Bacon used the word electric to describe materials that could create this attractive force. And in 1646, Sir Thomas Brown went a step further and he coined the word electricity. Now, in this case, it was a word meant to describe a material's behavior or the property of being electric. Sort of like if you were elastic, you would describe the quality of elastic as elasticity. Well, that was the case with electricity. It didn't mean a current or a flow or anything. It was a way of describing the tendency for a material to be electric. Moving forward a century, two different people independently invented a device capable of storing static electricity. One of those was Ewald George von Kleist, and the other was Peter von Mueschenbroeck. And again, I'm butchering names. Both of these guys developed their version in the early 1740s, and the basic device was pretty simple. In its original form, it was a glass vial that had some water in it. And the vial had a cork that capped the vial. But piercing through the cork was a piece of metallic wire that was long enough to have one end of it dipping into the water in the vial. The other end would extend out from the end of the cork. And it would be brought into contact with what was called a friction device, essentially an electrostatic generator. This was a device meant to build up a static charge. And this would transfer a buildup of electrons to the wire, which they could then actually hold on to that, that charge. And it would hold on to it until you touched it to something that would allow it to complete a circuit, and then it would discharge that electricity in a spark. So it was sort of like a very primitive capacitor. Uh, this would end up being called a Leyden jar because the area that it was uh, that where it was being invented was near Leiden in the Netherlands uh, and later versions of it would end up using metallic components not just a glass vial filled with water but the earliest versions were basically just that now this brings us to Benjamin Franklin Franklin met with a doctor named Dr Spence apparently who had traveled from Scotland, according to Franklin. There's actually some scholastic debate over who Dr. Spence might have been. Maybe he was Spencer, not Spence. Franklin got to see a Leyden jar in action, and he was fascinated by it. And not long afterward... Peter Collinson of the Royal Society of London sent Benjamin Franklin the equipment that he needed to make his own Leyden jar, and Franklin began doing experiments and sussing out the nature of this electricity thing. Now, some of those experiments involved using electricity to treat people with paralysis or people who were dealing with symptoms that they developed in the aftermath of a stroke, He observed that some patients reported improvement and relief after receiving electrostatic shocks. But he wrote in 1757 to the Royal Society that he, quote, never knew any advantages from electricity in patients that were permanent, end quote. So in other words, the effects he observed appeared to be temporary in nature. They did not seem to be a cure, although they might treat acute symptoms. And he couldn't really explain What was going on? Also, I should add that Benjamin Franklin wasn't necessarily just doing this on his own, thinking, well, gosh, I wonder what happens if I shock people who aren't feeling well. Will they feel better? This was sort of an accumulative approach. There were a lot of people who were speculating that electricity might be used for things that they had, frankly, run out of ideas as far as how they could treat them. There were a lot of diseases and disorders that we just didn't know how to treat. Uh, None of the conventional approaches seemed to work. So it was almost a move of desperation. Now, Franklin also went on to prove that lightning and the sparks that he was seeing from these electrostatic discharges were in fact the same thing. Different orders of magnitude and strength, but they were the same thing. He also invented the lightning rod to help protect houses against lightning strikes. Now, speaking of the Royal Society, Its members were also experimenting with using electricity as a medical treatment for all sorts of ailments, though primarily for things like paralysis, seizures, and neurological disorders and diseases. In general, the physicians of the 18th century who were inclined to try electricity as a means of treating these issues did so because more conventional treatments were failing. This isn't quite like saying, well, nothing else worked, let's shock them, but it's not far from that point of view. And we're still talking about discharging an electrostatic charge, so zapping someone, not subjecting someone to a prolonged, uninterrupted current of electricity. So this was usually done with the zap going to whatever area of the body was thought to be affected. So depending upon the disease or the disorder, the doctors would say well let's target let's say the liver and they would deliver an electric shock toward the uh, the the person's abdomen in an effort to shock the liver out of whatever the problem was Erasmus Darwin, who was the grandfather of the famous Charles Darwin, was one of the physicians who experimented with medical uses of electricity. The medical community was not universal in its acceptance of electricity as a means of treatment, but Darwin and a few other physicians sought to employ electricity to treat certain ailments and conditions, again, mostly in places where other treatments just weren't working. These included neurological disorders and diseases, paralysis, Seizures, things like that, and his fellow philosophers felt that natural philosophy, which was their term for the natural sciences, primarily physics, had the potential to make life better for people in general, and using electricity to help some of the most vulnerable people in the population seemed like a great way to do that. Now, Darwin believed in a concept called the spirit of animation. This would be a type of energy within living beings that gave life to those beings. This energy would travel along nerves to muscles. And in some ways, it was similar to electricity itself. And it was kind of heading down the right path toward how our neurological systems use electrochemical signals to control our muscles but it was a much more primitive and somewhat spiritual outlook on that process. Now, that being said, Darwin and his contemporaries had a limited understanding of electricity. Darwin described it as an ethereal fluid. Likewise, the understanding of actual ailments was limited and the language describing them sometimes imprecise. So Darwin used electricity to treat everything from jaundice to tapeworms. He also used it to treat symptoms like pain and swelling. And he noted that the shocks could restore some movement to what appeared to be lifeless limbs, something that a couple of other physicians would expand upon later. An early electrician named Tiberius Cavallo from Italy immigrated to England and became a member of the Royal Society. He worked to improve electrical devices, and he also lamented that many of the people in England making use of electricity in medicine were underqualified to do it properly. He said, Natural philosophers frequently lacked sufficient education and training in medicine, while the physicians, the doctors, fell short in the natural philosophy department. And indeed, as word spread, many people began incorporating stuff like Leyden jars in their various treatments. Some, like Darwin, were attempting to approach things from a more or less scientific perspective. Others were more on the snake oil con man side of things. And because of some advances in science and technology, things were about to get more complicated. But before I get into that, I want to tell you about today's sponsor, LinkedIn. Now, I'm sure you've all heard of LinkedIn. I've found LinkedIn to be incredibly useful in my work, but I really want to talk about what it's like to post a job on the site. Hiring the right person takes time, time you don't often have, but you shouldn't let a time crunch get in the way of finding the right candidate for your business. That's why LinkedIn is the best place to post your job. With LinkedIn, you can target your job postings so that you can match the people who have the skills you need with the jobs you want to fill. More than that, LinkedIn gives employers the chance to discover candidates who display the qualities the business needs most, whether it's collaboration, creativity, flexibility, or some combination of the above and more. LinkedIn gets your job post to the candidates best suited for your needs, giving you the best choices while taking up the least amount of time. It's no wonder great candidates are hired every eight seconds on LinkedIn. Find the right person meant for your business today with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want, and the first $50 is on them. Just visit linkedin.com techpod. Again, that's linkedin.com techpod. T-E-C-H-P-O-D, to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. Now let's get back to electricity as a type of medical therapy. Up until this point, I've been talking about using electrostatic charges to target specific body parts or general regions of the body, That means every treatment would be administered as a single or a series of single shocks. So you'd get shocked, and maybe they'd have to use a couple of different electrostatic generators to continue to build up a charge to shock you again. These were not necessarily super powerful shocks, though sometimes they could be. And with electrostatic charges, you're talking about discharging it pretty much all at once, at least until Alessandro Volta invented the electrophorus, but... Never mind that, it gets a little too deep in the weeds for us. Then we get to Luigi Galvani, an Italian physician in the late 1700s. On November 6, 1780, Galvani began to experiment with fresh frog legs, freshly cut from the frog. Galvani hypothesized that the muscle tissue and the nerves in a frog's legs could generate electricity, and that this was the energy used for motive force. This was different from the prevailing wisdom at the time, and he was largely derided for this hypothesis. In one of his experiments, he connected a nerve from a frog leg to a Franklin square capacitor, which caused the leg to twitch. He later used an arc of metallic wire to connect a nerve to a muscle in the frog leg, and that also caused the leg to contract again. Galvani published his results a decade later in 1791. Alessandro Volta recreated Galvani's experiments and discovered that he got even better results if he used a metallic arc made of two different metals, so a bimetallic wire. Volta believed that the two different types of metal were necessary to create what he thought of as an electrical imbalance. So a differential, if you will, and that Galvani's hypothesis that the animal's tissue generated its own electricity was off base. Galvani responded with a new experiment in which he connected the nerves of two different frog legs together, and that caused both frog legs to twitch. Galvani and Volta engaged in a spirited debate through correspondence and publications, that debate ended in 1798, not because one side had thoroughly defeated the other, but because Galvani went the way of his frogs and croaked. Get it? Volta took his idea, and he created a device that we call the Voltaic Pile. It was a stack of alternating layers of copper and cardboard soaked in salt water and zinc. And you had a wire connecting the bottom plate of the pile to the top plate, And that made a circuit through which electricity could flow. So you could actually put a load on that wire and it would power it. Not that there was anything to really power at that point. Sure enough, the pile generated a steady current of electricity. So it was an early type of battery. Now, I'm not going to go into the full chemistry of what's going on here because it would require a pretty big tangent in this episode. But we'll save that for a future episode where we'll go into more detail. Oh, and as for the debate between Galvani and Volta, turns out both guys were right. Volta was correct that the two metals connected through a salty medium generated electricity. It proved to be true. And Galvani's hypothesis that nerves and muscles generate electricity also proved to be true. So everybody wins. The invention of the battery would lead to new applications of electricity in medicine. And slowly, physicians were starting to change their understanding of how the body works. In the 1740s and 1750s, the prevailing ideas fell into a category called iatromechanical theories, and I'm sure I messed that up too. But the underlying assumption for that theory was that most illnesses were caused because something somewhere in the body was all gunked up. Essentially, either the blood wasn't flowing properly or nerves were somehow constricted or your gushy fluids in your body had become sludgy, like jello. And we'll see, there's your problem. Well, many people at the time believed that electricity could get stuff moving again, that it could quicken the pulse, and perhaps it could even break up that sludgy stuff in your body to make you better, that electricity could dislodge blocked humors in your body, and that those humors would otherwise prevent your body from being able to get rid of them. You know, you would just sweat them out or excrete them in some way. You would get rid of noxious humors. And this seems awfully similar to something that gets peddled a lot today, which is namely the concept of toxins. You'll hear a lot about various treatments from massage, you know, uh, massage therapists to, to sweat lodges to all sorts of different things where you get this vague concept of removing toxins from your body, like knocking loose toxins. That's an old, old, old idea that has no basis in real science. Uh, Your liver actually does process toxins already. So assuming you have a working liver, then your liver is already doing that for you. That's its job. If you don't have a working liver, you got bigger problems to worry about. But this bit of medical misunderstanding has been incredibly persistent and remains a key component in a lot of different places saying, like, this is what our treatments do for you. By the way, I'm not knocking massages. I love them. But yeah, the whole toxin thing is kind of, um, let's just say, a hullabaloo over nothing. On a related note, magnetism was also an area of intense interest among physicians and the general public, and because it's related to electricity through the electromagnetism force, I thought I'd chat about it just for a second. Like electricity, there are legitimate uses of magnets in the medical industry. There are many of them. Magnetic resonance imaging, for example. However, magnets also gave rise to the opportunity for charlatans to ascribe magical or vague properties to them that would somehow be a benefit to humans. Sure, they couldn't really explain how the magnets did this, but the claims were there. The fact that magnets could attract and repel each other through some invisible force made it seem kind of mystical. To people. And I think this is why, to this day, you can find companies that market magnetic bracelets that supposedly do everything from improving your circulation to somehow giving you a boost in athletic performance. There's no real scientific evidence to bear any of that out, by the way. The premise depends upon the target customer taking a leap of faith. It's actually pretty hard to understand how magnets work. I mean, just ask the Insane Clown Posse. And sometimes we humans are willing to take another leap if we see something that we can tell does something, but we don't understand how it does that something. So if I see a device do something that is really incredible, and then you tell me it can do something even more incredible, I might be inclined to believe you. I've already witnessed it do something that I can't explain. So I might be willing to just go along for the ride for the whole thing. And a lot of people found that out with magnets. So ignorance is the friend of the con man, is what I'm saying there. And it would be true both for magnets and electricity. However, I'm going to be a little bit more charitable. Not everyone in the 18th and 19th centuries was out to pull a fast one on people. I guess it's important to acknowledge physicians around this time were largely in an experimental phase. They were very slowly learning which treatments were most effective for various ailments. We weren't quite in the era of modern medicine yet, nor did we have a basic understanding of most pathogens. So it shouldn't be a huge surprise that some physicians were willing to try all new approaches, including the use of something they didn't fully understand, in the hopes that perhaps some positive effect would follow. Many of their patients had tried all other available treatments, and so any port in a storm, I guess. With the invention of the voltaic pile, we were on our way to the creation of batteries, and these would provide a supply of direct current, typically at pretty low voltages. And the early experiments in using electricity to treat a host of ailments meant that you could have a lot of opportunity to to jump on the chance to create products that leveraged the legitimacy given to the practice by the pioneers in medicine. So in other words, you had legitimate, respectable people looking into ways of using electricity to actually try and treat people. Then you had all the people who said, hey, I think this is a way I can make a buck and I can trade upon the legitimacy made by these other people who are also just experimenting. So this was also the era of patent medicines, also known as nostrums. These were products marketed as cures for various illnesses. They were sold as over-the-counter treatments and there was no need for a prescription and there was no accountability either. In many cases, perhaps in most cases, the best you could hope for is that you would end up with something that was ineffective but didn't cause any further harm. In the worst cases, you would end up with quote-unquote cures that could be toxic all on their own. If you've seen the original version of the Disney film Pete's Dragon, there's an antagonist named Dr. Terminus. He's a con man who deals in patent medicines. Well, electricity would join the ranks of those supposed cures in the 1800s. So let's take the work of Dr. James Bryan, for example. I do not know much about this person. My initial research didn't turn up any real facts other than There are a lot of doctors who happen to have the name James Bryan, both in the past and in present day. But this Dr. James Bryan produced a pamphlet advertising his products and services, which included electric belts and electric baths. So what the what? Well, I'll explain more in a second. But first, let's take a quick break. Before the break, I alluded to the electric belts and baths of Dr. James Bryan. So what the heck were those? Well, an electric belt is kind of what it sounds like. It was a belt worn against the skin, and the belt had electrodes in it, through which it could administer a current into the body of the person wearing the belt. It'd be attached to a battery or voltaic pile. The pamphlet helpfully has illustrations showing how different belts could be worn around the waist, around the stomach, as well as a harness version that would include electrodes near the back or the chest. And according to the good doctor, these belts were meant to treat problems like nervous prostration, hysteria, kidney disorders, liver disease, spinal injuries, and stuff what is not going well in your brain. The devices were priced at around $15 to $20, a princely sum in the early 19th century. The electric baths were a little bit different. They involved a patient getting into a special bathtub made out of a metallic material, whatever it might be. The tub was filled with water, and that would include some form of electrolyte component in it to facilitate conductivity. According to one description by a Dr. Maurice Verne, uh, an electric bath, the type of mixture sometimes... You know, a type of acid would depend upon whatever ailment you were actually trying to treat. So here's a passage from his description, quote, "The water is slightly acidulated to increase its conductibility, and the acid varies according to cases. Nitric or hydrochloric acid is used for the extraction of mercury, silver, or gold, other acids for that of lead. This done, the negative pole of the pile, meaning a voltaic pile, is brought into contact with the sides of the bathing tub and the positive pole placed in the hands of the patient. The work of purification is now in full activity. The electrical current precipitates itself through the body of the sufferer, penetrating into the depth of his bones, Pursues in all the tissues every particle of metal, seizes it, restores its primitive form, and chasing it out of the organism, deposits it on the sides of the tub where it becomes apparent to the naked eye. Well, that just sounds grand, don't it? It also sounds like hogwash to me. The process described would see deposits on the tub due to chemical changes within the water and the acid mixture as electrical current was passing through it. It would not be an indicator that stuff was getting pushed out of the person's body and then accumulating on the sides of the tub. Rather, it would be a buildup of stuff from the actual chemicals that were in the water already. This actually reminds me of ear candling, a practice that is equally dubious In that practice, a person with an ear ailment places a small candle in their ear canal and they light it. Now, according to those who practice this, the principle, the mechanical principle that makes this work is that the burning flame wicks away stuff like earwax out of your ear. The idea that it, it kind of pulls that wax up through the candle. And when you're done, assuming you haven't set yourself on fire or anything, When you take the candle out and you blow it out, you see that there does seem to be some gunk around there. But these are candles that are made of gunk. If you just lit one of the candles and you just let it burn on its own without being inside somebody's ear, you would get a very similar result. So in other words, we're still seeing these old methods and these old tricks being used today, both by people who know better but who are pulling a con and some people who are well-intentioned but misled. In general, the approach of the 19th century, particularly as the years went on, was to move away from delivering a dramatic shock, the way the electrostatic approaches had in the 18th century, and more toward using low-voltage currents to deliver therapies to patients. And most of the time, the goal was to try and find the lowest possible intensity in order to treat the maladies. Because more is not always better. And finding a method to provide treatment with the minimum discomfort and the minimum side effects was really the goal. But our understanding remained limited. So let's move up to the 20th century, the 1900s. At this point, we had a better knowledge of how electricity works. We had discovered electrons, for one thing. We knew the basic structure of the atom by this point. In the psychiatric medicine world, what was once called electroshock therapy, today we call it electroconvulsive therapy, used electricity to deliver a current through the brain of a patient with the intent of triggering a small, brief seizure on purpose. Now, this is still done today with varying degrees of success, and it's also under much more carefully controlled circumstances today. Oh, and and sometimes it also is called shock treatment, which also happens to be the name of an amazing musical and a sort of sequel to the Rocky Horror Picture Show, but I digress. This electroconvulsive therapy is used to treat conditions like major depression or bipolar disorder. And it's particularly for patients, again, who have not responded well to other types of treatment. And indeed, doctors learned back in the 18th century that seizures could sometimes help with certain disorders and diseases. It really has a medical Beneficial effect. Now, back in those days, they were typically induced through the use of certain chemicals, including one that became known as metrazole. That was until about 1938, when Lucio Bini and Ugo Serletti experimented with electricity to induce seizures instead of using chemicals. Many patients reported that after they had to take metrazole, that, that chemical I was talking about a second ago, they would experience intense feelings of terror just before they had a seizure. And they were so intense and so unpleasant that patients would try to avoid taking the chemical for understandable reasons. They did not want to experience this traumatizing reaction. But that meant treatment was becoming even more challenging. So Beanie and Cerletti actually were hoping that their approach using electricity to induce seizures rather than chemicals would actually work better and not cause this intense reaction in patients. And it did seem to have that effect for about half the patients that tried it. So about a 50% success rate. Also, there were reports that patients would experience a mild form of amnesia about the treatment itself. So they would have some amnesia that were the the effects were right around when they experienced the treatment. It wasn't general amnesia. It wasn't severe. And it wasn't permanent either. People would, over time, be able to remember effects. But because they would be somewhat forgetful of the experience of the electroconvulsive therapy they wouldn't develop a lot of strong negative feelings toward it. They just didn't remember what it was like. Now, that does not mean it was actually pleasant to go through it, but it does mean that patients weren't necessarily avoiding treatment. Now, that being said, this treatment was also used in the 1950s as a way to control unruly patients in mental hospitals, a practice that was dramatized in the novel and then future play and film of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. The experience was painful, and it could be dangerous. You know, seizures are are serious. Over time, doctors would adjust their approach to ECT to minimize the risks and the discomfort of the patient, but it was definitely something disturbing to witness in the early days. On top of that, some practitioners used ECT to treat things that were not disorders at all. For example, to quote-unquote treat homosexuality. They were subscribing to the belief that homosexuality was a behavioral disorder. Between that barbaric practice and the disturbing reports coming out of hospitals in the 1950s, electroconvulsive therapy understandably got a pretty bad reputation. Now, that does not mean it's an illegitimate practice and it doesn't work for for some disorders. It does work. But because it was used Poorly in several cases, and uh, not just poorly, but inhumanely in some cases, the overall approach got a pretty negative stigma attached to it. Now, these days, the way it works is more measured and scientific and controlled. A patient is put under anesthesia so that they don't experience pain. They're given muscle relaxants as well, and that way it helps reduce the risk of seizure, the physical risks of seizure. And it certainly has proven to be effective to treat some patients who are dealing with massive severe depression, for example. So the stigma still remains, but for some people, it has literally become a life-saving therapy. Now, there are some other uses of electricity in medicine. Some of them are disputed. Uh, There are devices that claim to use mild electrical stimulation to encourage healing in wounds. So let's say that you've broken a bone or you've got a bad cut, there are some devices that say that using electrical impulses, you can encourage the healing process and speed it up. Uh, There are others that are using electricity to help manage pain, but there's also a lot of disagreement over whether there's actually a real effect happening with these devices or if the effects are more psychological in nature. In other words, if you believe it works, it seems to work for you there are there are a lot of questions about it. It might work. It might not. A report on transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation, or TENS, that's a practice in which electricity is used to reduce pain. It's thought to inhibit part of the nervous system that processes the pain sensation. It's a good example of this issue in medicine. The report is titled, Using TENS for Pain Control, the State of the Evidence. It was published in 2014 in the journal Pain Manage, and it states, The evidence for TENS efficacy is conflicting and requires not only description, but also critique. Population-specific systemic reviews and meta-analyses are emerging, indicating both HF and LF-TENS are being shown to provide analgesia, specifically when applied at a strong, non-painful intensity. So in other words, the jury is still out on this. And there's also still some mystery around the actual mechanisms of electricity and its role in healing. That doesn't mean electrotherapy is a sham or that there's no way for it to work. I want to be clear about that. But what it does mean is we do not have a full understanding of what is actually going on. That's just, like, weird man like with technology we typically know if something works and we typically know how it works and why it works typically there are exceptions but with medicine sometimes we know that something seems to be working but we have no idea why it's working or why it might work in one case but not in another similar case. Or whether the effects we see are due directly to the treatment or more through the perception that the patient and the doctors have of that treatment. It's weird, man. I'm glad I'm stuck with technology because that's way easier to understand than, you know, us. Now, I plan on doing some more episodes related to this topic— Uh, I plan on revisiting topics that we have covered in past episodes of Tech Stuff, like the electric chair. It's a terrifying use of electricity that I think we need to revisit. Or devices that are meant to stimulate muscles using electrical pulses. I get ads for that occasionally because now that I am more health conscious, I tend to get ads for all sorts of stuff related to that. Some of them might be somewhat suspect. So, keep on the lookout for those episodes. They should be coming out before too long. But as always, remember to ask questions and to use critical thinking and do your homework because that's the way you're best suited to getting what you need. Whether it's a specific kind of device that you want or you're looking at treatments, it's always good for you to do some research and see if you can find as non biased a source of information as possible in order to draw your conclusions. Because there are a lot of people out there who either consciously are trying to take advantage of you or are unconsciously promoting pseudoscience thinking that they're doing the right thing. And that doesn't necessarily bode well for anyone out there. And uh, whether it's ill-intentioned or not, I want you guys to get the absolute best out of life you possibly can. So critical thinking. I know I say it a lot. What I also say a lot is if you have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, please reach out and tell me what they are. You can email me at techstuff@howstuffworks.com. Pop on over to our podcast website. That's techstuffpodcast.com. You will find links there for every episode that we have ever published. You will also find uh, where we are on social media. So you can hunt me down on Facebook or Twitter and get in touch with me that way. You can also find a link to our online store where every purchase you make goes to help the show, and we greatly appreciate it. And I will talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.